following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. Well, good morning. If you have your copy of the scriptures, join me, if you would, in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, and shove a bulletin in there or something. We're going to, we'll come back to that a little bit later. We're actually going to conclude the sermon with that passage. If you've ever spent any time around my, my daughter, Trinity, you might have noticed she's kind of a busy child. And uh, in fact, of my four kids, she is the one that makes me the most nervous most of the time. And some of you, I, I kind of imagine some of the ladies like, well, that's just because she's a girl and you're just, no, she's busy and scary, much more scary than the, the boys were. She was always climbing on stuff. And I'm like, how are you not falling off of that the way you're doing that? And so she makes me nervous. And if you've ever had a moment, maybe because some of you had the opportunity to have her in class, and if you had a moment where she cuddles with you, enjoy it because it's not going to last long. All right, she's busy. She actually has this thing. Um, and yesterday I was going over the sermon. I thought she maybe doesn't do this as much as she used to. And then I went home, and sure enough, she was doing it. She, she will lean on you or lay on you if you're on the floor, and she will just start rolling, like spinning. It's the strangest thing. And you'll be laying on the floor watching TV or something, and she will, like, flop on you to enjoy gravity and how you're like a teeter-totter. It's a, she's all over you like this. And this is her personality. I've just kind of come to accept it. She's loud. She's high-pitched, much more high-pitched than the boys. And she spins. Like, get, get this in your mind. She spins on you. We were playing the Nintendo Switch last night. She sits next to me, and she's finding a way somehow to be on me and spinning while I'm playing the game. But this behavior pattern was showing up in her when she was in Chrissy's womb. And she, you know, I, I can't imagine it because I had never had a baby in my stomach, but she'd say, this kid is kicking my kidneys, Daniel. You did this, you know, that kind of stuff. And she would grab my hand and so feel it, and I felt all four of the kids in the belly, and I, I talked to, to the kids while they were still in the womb, and because, you know, I know they're developing and all of this. And I, would, I actually used to read the Bible to Kenny through the, through the, while she was pregnant with him. And, and one day, so I'd feel this. I'm like, yeah, that, that's, she's going to be a soccer player, you know, one of those type of things. And I would feel her spinning in there. And so at one point, and we, we it's on Chrissy's old, one of her old cell phones. So I was going to, we wanted to put it up, but we just didn't think we could find it quickly. There's actually a video. She puts, Chrissy puts the remote control on her really pregnant belly. And Trinity is rolling in there, and you see this remote control just kind of doing this, up and down, side to side. And so even in the womb, we caught a glimpse of her personality, which is still present to this day. And then we had this amazing thing called an ultrasound, and we got to see first she was kind of like, uh, like the size of a gummy bear, right? We actually, she was baby bean four. So Kenny was baby bean one because we saw this little gummy bear floating through and, or a bean, whatever. And then eventually we got to see her face. And what we saw 
from the Bible, when we saw her face in that ultrasound picture, we saw the image of God. Not only could we see her personality at work in the womb, but through the ultrasound, we also saw the image of God. Here's what, God, here's what the Bible says in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this idea of, of a person being made in the image of God is what it sounds like. It's in some way, the, the child, a person, physically represents God. There's a, like a statue being erected. The word that was translated image is, is like a statue or a picture to represent something else. In this case, we are the image of God. And this verse is the foundation of Christian ethics, the foundation of Christian morality. It seems like a lifetime ago, but I had actually considered doing my dissertation on the topic of bullying because, well, I've kind of learned it's still being talked about extensively at school, but in 2010-ish, it was just all over the place being talked about. And so I started doing research, and I realized while there were some in the church world talking about it, there wasn't a lot being talked about. Uh, but in the school world, there was. And here's kind of a little nerd. Can I give be nerd for you a moment and you not glass over? I hope you drank your coffee, but I'm going to be a nerd for a moment. When you research and you read the research of others, one of the good questions to ask is, what is their theoretical background? What is, and as a Christian, I have to ask the question, what is their theological background? What's the framework? And so as a Christian, I'm obviously op op operating from the position that a person is made in the image of God because there's a God. And I'm not going to tell you that every researcher that's in the secular world is not a believer in God, but they have to check that at the door when they walk into the lab. It's just the way it is. And so when I read this literature about why we shouldn't bully, I say amen to all the stuff that the, the secular world's putting out. My question was, on what do you base this? that it's wrong to hurt another human being? Why is it wrong for a bigger kid to pick on a smaller one? Why is it wrong for a group of girls to verbally taunt another girl because they've got more numbers? And why? Well, it hurts them. So what? You believe in evolution, that we, we evolved from monkeys and the stronger ate the weaker. Well, as a Christian, I can tell you, they're made in the image of God. That's why it's wrong to hurt uh, a senior citizen because they can't go to work anymore. That's why it's wrong to do that. That's why it's wrong to... That's why it's wrong to abort a child. Because they're made in the image of God. Their productivity is not what determines their worth as human beings. And... In, when we see a baby in the womb, think of a Polaroid picture. Some of you guys don't, never saw a Polaroid camera. You might have heard that, that one old song from Outcast, Shake It Like a Polaroid Picture. That's all you know. You never actually saw a camera from a Polaroid. And if, for those of you who don't know or have forgotten because it's been a while, you have this camera and this little take the picture. So if I took a picture of you, the little film shoots out the bottom. It's like three by four. And if you give it time, you've got to shake it. And eventually the image appears. So here's what happens. Suppose I took a picture of, well, I'll just say one of my kids, straight out of the, like the one I had in the beginning. Straight out, they've just been born, got the pass in. Took a picture, and it's, the image is white still, but a little splotch of color shows up. And suppose I took the, you, took, you took the picture from me and tore it in half, and you said, that's not a picture. 
You say, yes, it is. You just need to give it the other 87 seconds to develop because it's like 90 seconds. When you see a child in the womb, catch this, it is a Polaroid picture. The image is completely there. It has, just hasn't shown up yet. And as Christians, we have frustrated many in our country because we, for the most part, Christians continue to be staunchly pro-life. Staunchly. Calvary's official position, it's in our documents. We are a, we believe in the sanctity of human life. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I've never preached on the topic, not because I'm not pro-life. I absolutely am. I didn't realize it until week, two weeks ago uh, that my mom said that she, when she used to go to uh, abortion protests, she took me down there in the stroller. I had no clue because I was too young to remember it. So I, I've been pro-life as long as I've, before I even knew I was pro-life, Okay. It was always there was something else to talk about, but I felt like it was a, a good time to talk about this issue. There are many people who are angry at Christians because we remain staunchly pro-life. They don't understand why it is. So the argument's always, you're against choice, and that has, has nothing to do with it. And I'll tell you in a little bit why our reason is, but there are also Christians who are angry at other Christians because, for the most part, Christians have always been pro-life to try to make the case that Christians could and should be pro-choice or pro-abortion. Uh, some have said the church hasn't always been pro-life. Yes, it is. You don't know history. From the year 100, there's a little document called the Didache, and that is essentially a description of church. It was like a manual of church practice. And it literally says in the Didache that a woman should not have an abortion, which they were not common because they were very unsafe, but they did happen and they should not expose their children. What's exposure? Well, um, because here's the thing. W babies are not really viable outside of the womb for a long time. What they would do is they would just take a baby out of the womb and they say, that's a, that's a boy and that's going to mess with our inheritance plan, so we'll just expose them to the elements. And they didn't consider it murder. They consider it not welcoming the child into society. So we're going to talk about this. Why are we pro-life? Well, I'm going to do my best to give you a very simple one. We're going to begin from logic. So I'm going to give you a pro-life syllogism. You go, what's a syllogism? It comes from philosophy. It's kind of like taking two simple logical statements that lead to a conclusion. You ready? Statement number one, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Amen. Abortion, is, abortion kills an innocent human being. Therefore, abortion is wrong. That's our position. Has always been, has never changed. I'm borrowing this, by the way, from Scott Klusendorf, just in case you find him, and I hope you do check out the sermon. I'm borrowing essentially from him, but I've kind of made it my own at certain points. But it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian only to believe that. That's atheists believe that too. Abortion kills an innocent human being. And therefore, abortion is wrong. So let's take a look at this, because this brings us to a question then. This brings us to three questions. Number one, what is the unborn? Because some say it's not a human being. Then what makes something valuable? What makes a person valuable? And number three, then, what is our responsibility to the unborn? Well, here's uh, from what is the unborn. I'm sufficiently satisfied with what the Bible says, but not everyone is. So here's what, here's what the unborn is. Answer from the science of embryology from the National Institute of Medicine. The zygote, a fertilized egg, contains all of the genetic information, that's DNA, needed to become a baby. Half the DNA comes from the mother's egg and half from the father's sperm. Translation, the baby in the womb 
is not the mother's body. It's a separate human being altogether. Now, I can make the case from the Bible, but I just made it from science. That is a human being inside of you. From the earliest stage of human development, you were there. We just couldn't see you yet. You were like the Polaroid picture that still needed to be developed. All of you was there at the moment of conception. Here's what Psalm 139 says, verse 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts... You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. God saw us. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The word earth there is a metaphor for the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, God saw you, that little, that little egg, that zygote, 50% mom, 50% dad, you're this unique individual person, and God sees the end from the beginning. The picture hasn't developed, but God knows where it's going. God knew that Trinity, the little roller, was going to be rolling for four years at least. Still waiting for this to stop, to be honest with you. You were male at the moment of conception. You were female at the moment of conception. You were a person waiting for full development. The Bible makes clear that God is an active partner with human beings in the act of procreation. I've got to pause and say something. Because we are Americans, raised in a very scientifically blessed country, we think that the natural is all there is to life. That science is all there is. You get this, you do this, you do this, this happens. Male and female get together, baby happens. That's not always the case. It's not always the case. Well, the Bible says that the Bible makes clear that God is an active partner with human beings in the act of procreation. Genesis 4.17, Eve says, hey, I've, I've gotten a man by the Lord. The same type of talk shows up in chapter 17, chapter 21, chapter 30. It shows up in the book of Ruth. It shows up in the book of Luke. When Jesus is, is conceived, it shows up when John the Baptist is conceived. Fair enough, some of you are not satisfied with what the Bible says. When Kenny was born, our, he was born just a few days before Thanksgiving and our doctor was, he had come to visit us after he was born one last time before he headed out to, I think it was Alabama for a Thanksgiving dinner with his family. And he's walking out of the room, and I asked a question. You know, sometimes you have enough information to be dangerous. I, had, I asked him a medical ethics question. And as he, uh, he was walking out the door, and I'm thinking it's a simple yes or no question, he opens the door, stops, shuts the door, turns away from his Thanksgiving plans, comes back, sits down on the bed, and here's what he says. He's like a, a Dr. Ciancio type, really smart, kind of built the same action now that I remember it, knows the Bible, knows science. And he says this, I have come to understand that it is actually a miracle of God that life comes together. 
and he finished all of his statements. That I don't remember everything he said, but that was what I took from me from it. It is a miracle of God when life comes together and God is sovereign in the process. Is he a dumb guy who doesn't understand theology because he's a Bible thumper? No. You don't graduate med school without being a guy who understands science. He understood it was a miracle. And, and so we have this reality that God is active in the process. So then, what makes a human being valuable and what makes us all equal? We all have, here's the answer, we all have the same human nature that bears the image of our maker. And if our ground, or of the ground, if the ground of our value, if this is where we derive our value, is from our abilities and capabilities, which rise and fall as we age, we're in big trouble. If our abilities are what determine, if our capabilities are what determine whether or not we are human beings and should be treated with dignity and as sanctity of life, we're in big trouble as a country. Think about this. At 40, I'm coming up on 46. My birthday's Wednesday, and I'm hoping for more snow. Praise God for it. Be a birthday present. I'm the only one of the few weirdos that like the stuff. At 45, I've my back is finally sort of better, and I've been able to strength train, and I am regaining strength, and I am having fun. It doesn't sound like it from the basement because they think I'm injured, but you know, you grunt up, you like I'm going to push now without without thinking my back's going to discon disconnect. All right, so I'm getting my strength back. But truth is, at 46, I will never be what I was at 46. It's the reality. I was very capable at 45, 46, or 25, 26, and I'm regaining some of it, but I'm never going to be the guy at 26. And when I'm 66, I hope to be strong again still, but I'm never going to be what I was at 46 and 26. Not likely. My capability does not determine my value. I was much better at basketball. I, I used to be able to dunk, believe it or not. It's hard to believe by looking at me, but I could dunk. I'd be lucky to touch the bottom of that net right now. Our value is not determined by our capabilities, which change throughout life. We all have the same human nature, and you had the nature from the moment you began to exist. So this brings us to another question. What's the difference between an embryo and a human being, an adult? There are only four differences between you as an embryo and you as an adult. Some of you will think that's overly symbolistic, but this is what it boils down to. Summed up in an acronym, SLED. Size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency on another human being. SLED. Size, you are obviously much bigger today than you were when you were an embryo. But guess what? I'm bigger today than I was. Bigger today than I was when I was 17, to be quite frank with you. Size isn't the determinant about what makes you a human, is it? Level of development, obviously the DNA is all there at the moment of conception. We're just differently developed. But can I tell you something? I've got a four-year-old, and nobody would say it was okay to harm her, right? But she is not the same girl at four that she's going to be at 14. There are things that she cannot do now that she will be able to do at 14. She will be able to have a child, Lord willing. She can't now. Um, my my six-year-old kid, I'm pretty sure he's not capable of being a father yet. 
at 16, he will have developed that. David Robinson, when he graduates high school, he's six foot four. By the time he enters the NBA, the Admiral was seven foot one. He was still developing. And he was a better player after a few years in the NBA than when he was when he started. He was still developing. See, level of development is not what determines whether or not a human being is of value. But we use that as an explanation as to why somebody should be able to kill, terminate a pregnancy. Environment. Question. How does an eight inch journey down the birth canal transform someone from something that we can kill into something that we cannot? Do you know that they, uh, this is amazing. Thank the Lord for science. At 24 weeks, there are babies who have been removed from the womb, surgical procedures performed, and they put the baby right back in. By our logic from the pro-choice position, when the baby was out having surgery, you can't kill it. But once you put it back in, you don't have to protect it if the mommy changes her mind. Environment. If I trot out a toddler on the stage, Somebody says, why are you pro-life? And I say, well, I'll tell you what. If I bring a toddler out on the stage, is it okay for me to, to, to kill it? Well, of course not. Everyone's going to say it. You could be the hardest-hearted atheist, and you know that that's wrong. But why is it okay, then, if it's still in the womb? I submit to you it's not. We know it's wrong for mom to kill the toddler. We take him to court. We want justice, death penalty. For some reason, we think that if it's in a different environment, it's okay. Size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency on another human being. The reason exposure works, and it shows up in the Bible, when uh, Moses was born, you remember how the king was trying to kill all the Hebrew babies? He said, hey, uh, first he tries to get the Hebrew women to kill the babies, and they're like, I mean, you're powerful, but you ain't God. That's pretty much how it sums up. So when the Hebrew women aren't going along to get along, he tells his own people, okay, when you see the Hebrew children, expose, throw them in the river. And Acts, uh, St. Stephen says he was having, trying to force them to expose the babies. Exposure works because the baby is not capable of life outside of the womb for quite some time. He is dependent. And Trinity at four years old is independent, but she's still dependent. She won't last very long without mommy and daddy. And at 46, I'm very dependent on Chrissy. But you know what? There's 76-year-olds in the nursing home that are very dependent on other people. What? There are only four differences between you as an embryo and you as an adult. Those differences are summed up size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency. Differences in these four degrees of development are not good reasons to kill someone. Child in the womb is an undeveloped Polaroid. A few years ago, it seems like a lifetime ago, I was actually involved with a, a thing from that the United Way put on. It was pretty cool. It was called the Teen Outreach Program, and I worked with at-risk teens at one of the local schools. And um, one of the activities that they had us do which I had no idea how powerful if this was going to affect these teenagers. Uh, there's an after-school program, and I had them draw this thing, draw up some things that was going to kind of get across the idea 
who you are, what your life is like, what things you like, and so forth. Show who you are on a piece of paper. And they do this, and my job, once they've turned them back into me, is to tear them up. To communicate to them the idea that bullying was wrong. And I tore up the first one, and every single one of these kids, they were all girls, were like, like well, we ain't tearing up the rest of them because I'm pretty sure the lesson's over. And I apologize. I said, look, girls, this is what I'm told to do on this. This is obviously not a good idea because it really hurt your feelings. But the idea is those pictures represented your life, and we tore them apart. Imagine if the human being in God's eyes is like a Polaroid needing fuller development, and we tear it up. I wonder if that's how God views it. What if someone asks you then, why are you pro-life? I'm borrowing this from Klusendorf, so I want to give credit where credit is due. You can say this. I am pro-life because the science of embryology says that from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct and living and whole human being. There is no degree of development between who you are today and what you were in the womb that would justify killing you back then. Different... Differences of sizes, level of development, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying that you could be killed back then, but not now. So then this brings us to a position, a question, a crossroads, if you will. What then is our responsibility to God and the unborn? What is our responsibility to God and the unborn? Luke chapter 10, verse 25, you will know this well, even if you've not spent a ton of time in the church, I'm sure you are familiar with some of this. And behold, a lawyer stood up. Even back then, they weren't popular. Even, oh, if you're a lawyer, I'm so grateful for you. Sorry. Preachers aren't really popular anymore either, so just throwing that one out there. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him on the test, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the laws? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Pause for one second. The theological, theoretical foundation for that statement was Genesis 1.27. You love your neighbor as yourself because they're made in the image of God. Let's continue. Verse 28. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jer Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. He was avoiding him. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, it, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, 
the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This past week I had uh, opportunity, uh, we had our quarterly business meeting for the Baptist Children's Home of Indiana. For those of you who don't know, I'm on the executive board and I got to learn a lot of great things, but I had to hear a wonderful story and I have permission to, to share this with you. Um, part of the reason I got involved with the Children's Home uh, was last year when they overturned the laws regarding abortion, I said, okay, we got our way in the courts, now we need to step up. Well, we already have been stepping up, we just need to do more of it. At least I need to. So this, they, through, through conversation, I, this, she picks up on that I'm passionate about children and including those who are born in crisis situations and I have a background in it. So she says, hey, do you want to be on the executive board? So that's kind of how I got there. Um, so we have this meeting, and she shares this story. She said, a lady called into the children's home. It's up in Valparaiso, Indiana. lady called into the children's home. She hears the story. She's got, a, she's got a kid already. She's not married, and she has another kid on the way. And here's what she says. I don't know how I'm going to take care of this kid. I don't want to have an abortion, but I don't feel like I have any choice. Can you help? And immediately a group of ladies that work there gather up some, some diapers and some other things, and they, they go out and meet this gal. They bring diapers, they bring food, they counsel her and encourage her and say, we're going to walk with you through this journey. There's going to be an effort made to get her connected to a local church, but they are helping and stepping up and filling in the gap. They, they brought shoes for the older kid. I share this story to say she was in crisis, felt like she could call the children's home for help, and they stepped up. And she's choosing life. And this got me to thinking, how beautiful is it that that ministry has a reputation that that is a place where girls in trouble can call, what we used to call girls in trouble, can call when there's an unintended pregnancy. And then I said, what? If a girl in our neighborhood got pregnant in a similar manner, would she think Calvary was a place she could call to get help? And the initial response might be to say, no, Calvary would never help, but I don't believe that for a second because I know you. I think there are lots of people in this church that would want to help. But can I tell you what I really think? I think whether it's an earned reputation amongst people outside of the church, Real or imagined, I don't know. I'm not going to... Another conversation. There seems to be, probably for many, a wall there. The church won't help me, but they will judge me. And there may be a hint of truth to some of that, but not all of that. What is our obligation to the unborn? To love that unborn child and to love his mother. Sometimes it's easy to do. Sometimes it's, it's not. And then the more you know, the harder and more important the thing becomes. I, I, even learning about crisis pregnancies that I didn't, stuff I didn't know. That mama's stress level, cortisol that develops in the body actually affects the baby's development. And so not sure if you can get diapers, if you got food, if family's going to step up and, 
that adds stress to mommy, which stresses our neighbors in her womb. And, and, and so I, I've wrestled a lot about how to kind of bring this home to us at Calvary. Here's my thoughts. For some reason, probably Calvary is viewed as having a wall around it. You can't, we're not going to, Calvary's not going to help you or any of the other Bible-believing churches. They won't help you. And I know that's not true because I know lots of the pastors and they would love to step up and help. But for whatever reason, there's no bridge there. We're uh, surrounded by a moat in their mind. What would it take for us to be put the drawbridge down? And they would know when the, there's a problem, you could come to Calvary. That's kind of what I hope it will become. We are pro-life. You know, there, I'm just going to throw this out there. I almost wasn't going to quote him, and I almost wasn't going to mention his name. We'll decide in a moment if I'm going to. I'm not sure. There was a politician. He said this of the pro-lifers, which I'm one. He's talking about me and most of you. The pro-lifers are pro-life in the womb, but not once they're born. Now, that's a lie, but he believes it. He's a senator. And I hate to tell you, there are Christians who actually bought into that stuff. And I'm like, wait a second. There's like 2,500 adoption clinics, crisis pregnancy centers in the United States, and they're not coming from the atheists. They're coming from Christians. And I'm allowed to share that our budget. The children's home is well over a million dollars. It's public knowledge. It's not like something we have to hide. That all comes from Christians, not government. And there's lots of agencies like that. In Missouri, it was the Missouri Baptist Children's Home. I worked with them, volunteered for them. Carmi, Illinois, we've got a Baptist Children's Home there. There are others that I don't know about. I worked for the Kentucky Baptist Children's Home called Sunrise Children's Home. My point is we actually do care about the kids once they've been born into crisis. But I hope and pray that more and more as we realize the need, we would be willing to whether that be adoption, financial giving, volunteering. My role with the children's home is volunteer. In case you're wondering, there's besides what they do in the United States, there's 800 kids in other countries that the children's home supports and takes care of. I simply say that to say we are pro-life from birth until death. But what would it take for Calvary to be a church that people outside of here would say, I don't, maybe I don't like everything they believe, but when you need, when you're a family in need, that they'll step up. Well, girls do talk to each other. The girl gets pregnant and might say, you know, I know you need help. Why don't you call Calvary? They did this for me. They did this for me, and they took me to, listen, one of the stresses, you know, at least for us, when we lived in Ellington, it was an hour to the, to the, to the doctor appointments that Chrissy had to go to. Maybe take some stress off. You got a single mom and she's got to do all the heavy lifting on everything. That adds stress to mama, which is stress as baby. When Kenny was being born, Chrissy, Chrissy worked, worked for a hospital. And the doctor was notorious for being really difficult. He liked Chrissy of all. She's like the only person he liked, as it would turn out, in the, in the place. But he, near the end of, of, of Kenny, before he was being born, uh, the doc, she had a test and stress level was high and he just goes you need to just go home because he knew that he worked she knew that he he knew which doctor he worked she worked for because stress was not going to be good for mama and therefore not good for baby 
as a church, we can step up. We can't do everything, but we can do something. And, and I guess my, my, my prayer is, you know, what, could we, what, needs to change, what would need to change in our hearts so that we could be the one? See, the good Samaritan, he didn't just stand there and say, well, I'll help when he gets up and comes over here. He actually went to them. Now, admittedly, we'd have to know who needs the help. But a lot of times, if they know you'll help, they'll come to you. That's kind of my hope and my prayer. One more story. Back when I was in Ellington, one of the kids who had kind of been in and out of the youth group that I was over, I was kind of pastor and youth pastor. I was busy, you know. And uh, one of the kids who was in and out, unique, very unique family, good people. They make decisions differently than I would. I'll just say it that way. But they were, they loved Jesus. They loved each other, and they were, they were not like lawbreakers or anything. Well, he has a girlfriend, and he gets her pregnant. They get pregnant. And I, I run into him at work, and uh, he, he sees me, and I could just see him. like Every other conversation I have is he's always happy to see me. But, you know, he's like, I bet you heard because the rumor mill is strong. And that, the rumor mill is strong in that country, or that part of the country. But it was true. And I said, he said, man, he was talking. He's just like, I did the worst thing possible. <laughs> and I just stepped back, and I what are you talking about? So I listened. He said, well, I got her pregnant, and we're going to keep the baby. And I said, brother, in church on any given Sunday, there's lots of people that had sex before marriage. They don't all have children out of it. You didn't commit something that was so much worse than so many other people. And his spirits lifted. The kid was deflated because he knew he had made a mistake. He did something wrong. Fast forward they chose life he as far as I can tell is raising the child as a single dad family came alongside but I want to be the type of church that will come alongside of people who are in trouble and yeah there's a need for you know he was automatically knew he had made a mistake he had done some a mistake he had sinned you like stronger language there it is he sinned I understand we need people to come to the place where they admit that they've sinned, but discipleship kind of happens more easily when they know you love them. And so my challenge for us as Christians, uh, maybe you're a Christian who's a little uncomfortable with the whole pro-life thing, and, and I hope I've laid out a case that you can say I, I can see. At the very least, maybe you're not on board with it, but you can say I'm not mad at the other Christians for thinking this way. Maybe I was able to change your mind. And for those of you who are strongly pro-life, here's the thing. It, you can't, there's not going to be a bunch. Of, we need all Christians to be willing to say, here's why I'm pro-life. And unfortunately, we're in a day and age where for a lot of people, the Bible says might not cover it. Be willing to give a logical explanation. I hope I've given you some tools for that. I really encourage you to check out the message from uh, Scott Klusman, who I've borrowed from extensively. I didn't plagiarize him. Um, I'll give him credit where credit is due. But perhaps this morning you're, you're a person that you say, I, I've, maybe you've had an abortion. Is there hope for it? Can I be forgiven? I have a relative, a loved one, who had an abortion decades ago. As far as I can tell, has never really gotten over it. And I would simply tell you that the only unforgivable sin that I am aware of in the Bible is what's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I want to give you my simple, I hope simple explanation of it. When somebody blasphemes the Holy Spirit, here's what it is. Two things, two components to it. You ready? 
Number one, when, the, when you have this conviction that you, it comes from God that what you've done is wrong, is a sin, if you reject that voice, that's blasphemy because you're calling the Holy Spirit a liar. So when the Holy Spirit's saying you've done something wrong and you're just like, no, it's kind of hard to help you at that point. But maybe you've gotten to the point where you say, I know that I've sinned, whether it's a, a abortion or, or just, you name it, lying to parents. That was the first sin I can remember doing. Lied to my, lied, right? So once you know that you've committed those things, the second thing is God, the Holy Spirit, will convict you about your need to repent and come to Jesus in saving faith. And when you reject that, there's no hope for you. That can't be forgiven. Everything else that a human being can do, even mocking Jesus himself, that was the context. That can be forgiven. But not rejecting and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What am I saying? There is forgiveness for everyone who comes to Jesus in faith, regardless of what they've done. There is grace for us. As a church and as a preacher, I will never intentionally step back from preaching the truth to you. And there are some things that are sin that our culture thinks is... Listen, just because something's legal doesn't make it right. As Christians, we know there are some things that are sin. And once we know what those sins are, the answer is to come to Jesus, confess our sins. And so maybe as a Christian, you've, had the, you've done this, or maybe in a, before you were a long time, maybe you've never come to faith in Christ. Maybe you've believed in Jesus, but you felt like that, there was something that you've done that just simply cannot be forgiven. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm here to tell you that the Bible says that if all your sins are, as, are like scarlet, this will be white as snow. Your sins will be blotted out. Reset, reconciliation will take place between you and God. Healing of the soul takes place. God does a work inside. The God who sees and knows you from inside out then begins a work of healing. And so my invitation for the church is... What would it take for us to be the type of church that the drawbridges are down, the walls are not down, and people know Calvary is the place you can go to when you need help? I think we will help. How do we put down the drawbridge? And finally, as the praise team comes, maybe this morning, you're kind of wrestling with this reality that you're a sinner. We've all sinned in various ways. I'm a sinner. Maybe today you say, I, I, I believe that. Here's what you need to know. To atone for sin, to pay for sin, Jesus Christ came into the world, the Son of God, lived a sinless life. He said, your life was so precious to him and to his Father in heaven, he died on the cross to pay your sin debt. And what the Bible tells us is rather plain. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever turns from sin, calls on Jesus for salvation, will be saved. They will be forgiven. This morning, if you'd like to call on Jesus for salvation, I invite you. The Holy Spirit invites you. Make your way to the front and help you call on Jesus for salvation. He will save you. He will forgive you. He will restore you. Please stand for our song of invitation. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. Thank you for listening.